Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Humane Podcast, your tech insider podcast on the data economy. From the physical circuit chips on your smartphone to the software-powering GPT models, we live in a data-first world. Humane interviews the founders, investors, executives, and tech leaders that are creating the world that we live in for consumers and enterprises. Today, we're featuring Maxwell Galka, or Max, who is the CEO of Elementus, a very exciting startup building at the crossroads of both AI and blockchain. Today, we'll be focusing on how AI is transforming decision-making on the blockchain. Max, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Great to be here, David. Thank you. Well, first and foremost, the technology is always evolving, but it's always great to tee up for our guests, you know, who you are and the, the career that you've built prior to your current startup. So can you share with us a little bit about what you've done in the data world? Yeah, sure thing. In undergrad, I studied both computer science, engineering, and finance. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. So even as far back as college, I come back, come from these two universes. For the first 10 years of my career, I worked as a trader on Wall Street. So I worked at Deutsche Bank Credit Suisse as a fixed income trader. I traded mortgage-backed securities and a variety of weird esoteric derivatives. And then I left finance and really started focusing on, on tech, which is really uh, what I'm, I'm most passionate about. And so I, I kind of went back to my engineering technical roots and got involved in a number of different things. So I built a few startups. Uh, I was teaching data science at the University of Pennsylvania before I, uh, I founded Elementus and a variety of other side projects I was working on. And um, boy, I came across blockchain and, well, I'll say just as, as a start, very much we're kind of right in the wheelhouse of these two domains that I come from. And uh, man, technology just completely blew me away. Yeah, and thinking about technology and the change you mentioned, you know, during this journey of being at multiple startups before, you know, you were also a professor, right? And you've been focused at this space at Wharton doing data science. I'm curious your experience there, right? Wharton's known as a preeminent business school, but it's like all MBAs and all degrees and all business schools becoming more tech focused. So I'd love to hear about your experience there running some data science programs. Yeah, sure. So I have a degree graduating from Wharton. The, um, the school that I taught in when I taught data science was called uh, Musa Masters in Urban Spatial Analytics. So it wasn't at Wharton. It was uh, at a different school within the University of Pennsylvania. And the kind of data we were working with, it was, um, well, like it covered a variety of different topics. So it was a lot of it was geospatial data. So working with a lot of mapping data but also just kind of running uh, general purpose analytics. So I taught uh, my students some just very practical uh, data skills, things like web scraping, using working with data frames, using R, and I would say covered a, a wide variety of different topics. 
I'm a big fan of all things urban analytics. I think it ties a lot into urban economics. And, you know, I remember in my undergrad days where I was doing research and, you know, this is before the days of automated data pipeline management using Python, where where you're actually trying to find just the common joins on, on SQL queries to take data sets as in consumer behavior and, and public-facing data sets. So mm-hmm. always excited to be in that space. And for any of our listeners based in New York City, one of my favorite conferences focused on spatial computing is the Spatial Data Science Conference, which occurs every year at near Columbia University and brings a lot of GIS specialists together. So it's a it's a great space. It's always evolving. Just a lot of new technology. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you're, you're speaking my language right there. I, I love uh, geospatial data. I also wrote for uh, Guardian Cities as well. So I did a lot of um, articles about various topics using um, public geospatial data from different cities. So I don't get to uh, dabble in that stuff too much in Elementus, but um, the topic that I, I've always really enjoyed. Yeah, and it's, it's more and more important as we're becoming a data-first world. And and prior to Elementus, you mentioned you've uh, run different startups in different variety of industries, all centered around data, geospatial, public records, and, and other elements. Can you tell me a little bit about how those journeys shaped and informed your opinion on technology in the industry to lead you back in 2018 to found Elementus? Sure. The first startup I founded after leaving finance was a real estate tech startup called Revaluate. So what what we did was, um, for anyone familiar with Carfax, it's something of a vehicle history report where you can order a report on a car and you can see whether that car has been in an accident or has had any kind of flood damage or anything, anything else relating to the history that you might not be aware of. What we were building was something similar for homes and in particular in cities. So that was the business. I would say that, boy, the biggest lesson I learned from that was that, man, entrepreneurship is hard in a way that um, I had never experienced uh, something being hard before. You know, unlike a lot of other things, I, w- I was an athlete as well. I know I was a very diligent student, but for school, for uh, for athletics, really, there's no mysteries to how to succeed. You, you go practice, you work in the off season, you study, you do the problem sets until you get them right, and then you go into the test and you're uh, pretty likely to do well. Entrepreneurship, it's just, um, you're kind of just uh, starting off right in the deep end and you have absolutely no idea what to even do. The hardest question I always found was just, you know, I wake up in the morning, there's a million and one things I can focus on. Where am I going to put my my time and energy today? So I, I'd say, yeah, really, uh, my first startup really um, gave me a good appreciation for uh, just how challenging and difficult it is to build a business. You know, on the, on the flip side, I'd say it also gave me a view into just how, um, what an incredible experience it is. It, just the potential for personal growth, all the different things that, that you can learn. You know, I've worked with uh, really amazing people and I've learned so much from them. And well, yeah, the ability to craft something and to have the freedom and the flexibility to, well, to better myself and to take it in the direction that I want to take it. It's really liberating, and it's. Uh, I never want to go back to a paid uh, salary job again. 
Yeah, and there's so many interesting things about the founder journey, right? And and someone like yourself, who's a serial entrepreneur, who's been on the founder journey time and time again, it's a lot of things you discover each time about yourself, about your company, about the industry. And sometimes that could be the prioritization. As you mentioned, Max, right? you got all these competing priorities, always a hundred things to do, but what are the top three things you can do today to truly move the needle, right? Grow the business, develop the product, expand those partnerships and land customers. And that's always competing. And from a product perspective, there's trade-offs that we have to constantly optimize for and and be very focused there. But also factors outside of our control, right? Sometimes the market evolves, right? We've seen this in the AI industry. We've seen this with the blockchain industry, right? A lot of yeah. ebbing and flowing, coming and going. But I think we're seeing resurgence going on there today. And fast track from reevaluate to, you know, your other ventures to now. Tell us this time around, you know, what inspired Elementus and tell us about the core thesis for this company. Well, when I first came across the blockchain in, uh, this was 2017, I, I wasn't looking to start a business. This is uh, when I, I mentioned I was teaching data science at the University of Pennsylvania. I was uh, doing a lot of other side projects as well. And I was always just interested in different kinds of public data sets that were out there. So digging into the blockchain began like many other just side projects that I was went into just because it's uh, the weird geeky stuff that I enjoy. So yeah, I, I would say that I was really struck by the technology itself and just the, the sheer potential that it has. This was around, yeah, in 2017, this was shortly after Ethereum was launched. So ICOs were kind of the big hot ticket item at the time. But boy, just the concept of, uh, of a smart contract, a decentralized computer program really just uh, grabbed me. And you know, as I started digging into it, the first item that called my attention was that for these ICOs, there were a lot of websites out there that were claiming to provide data. I was curious just to see how big this market was and how much money different companies were actually raising. And I expected that that would be something that would be um, trivial to pull out of the blockchain. The fundraising for all these ICOs, it's all publicly recorded transactions that are right on the blockchain. And it turned out it was a really hard problem. I spent a good, I don't know, maybe six weeks, six to eight weeks just trying to answer some of these questions for myself of the question being, how much money did each of these ICOs actually raise? In the course of that, I guess I sort of realized, wow, you know, thinking back to my finance days, the finance industry runs on information. As a trader, most of my day was spent on the phone trying to get information, trying to understand what's happening in the market. Here you have every single transaction written to a public database in real time. So yeah, I suppose I was struck by by the, the potential of the technology, by the need to be able to read the information on the blockchain in order to make well-informed decisions and to be able to adopt the blockchain. Yeah, given my background in data science, my background in finance, these are problems that I understand very well and know very well how to solve. And, you know, very interesting, like in these early days, like you mentioned, data enthusiasts like yourself and myself, I would think, oh, wouldn't it be as simple as there'd be certain JSON data structures that, you know, you'd run some query or connect some API, store it in a database, right? And then perform mm -hmm. your insights and analytics. But it sounds like what you're describing was not the case early on, Max. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And st still not the case. From the user's point of view, the blockchain feels very simple, right? It feels very much like a bank account. You send money in and out of your account and you have a balance. 
But when you look under the hood at how the blockchain actually works, it's actually quite different. So it's um, orders of magnitude, more convoluted, more complicated than you would expect given what people are doing. It's not because of anything um, functional about the blockchain. It's just purely a function of, well, the fact that the blockchain is optimized for what it does. It's optimized to be fast. It's optimized to be scalable. It's optimized to be compact, not optimized to be readable or understandable, nor is it optimized for analysis. So that was really the the big insight that I pulled out from my time spent digging into the blockchain was just, um, yeah, how, how difficult the problem was, but that it, it was, in fact, uh, solvable. Yeah, and thinking about the use case that you were describing, right, this circa 2017 plus time period of this boom in this ICO space, as we all know, moving into the 2020s became the ICO bust, right? So these are no longer a vehicle that's used, but I'm curious, any insights that you, you extracted or you discovered as you were doing early analytics in these platforms or building these platforms? Oh yeah, there were, uh, boy, there were, there were all sorts of things that we came across. You know, some of the work we do is with, um, some of the three lateral federal agencies. So I, uh, I can't be completely forthcoming on uh, all the different things that we came across. But, um, well, if we're talking about ICOs in particular, and I, I should clarify, by the way, that ICOs are not by any means our product. That was just kind of the first foray into making sense of the blockchain. But if we are talking about ICOs, yeah, there were all sorts of scams that the ICOs were running. The half of these companies that claimed to raise uh, $10 million, $20 million really only raised a, a fraction of that, that it was really uh, a lot of it was kind of smoke and mirrors on the blockchain. Yeah, and it's interesting to see, you know, like you mentioned, whenever any analytics are done, it's important to understand whether the the clear factors or variables that are are impacting insights and what could be lurking variables. And perhaps there were some hidden lurking variables there that, you know, there's been many news stories covered around exactly that, why ICO volume was not truly what it was. So we could save that for the articles that have been shared, right? But interesting, you know, switching gears to your product, right? And your evolving product stack. Tell us about where Elementus started, you know, marrying blockchain and data together and how your platform and solutions have evolved. Well, ICOs were the first area to focus on, but, you know, that's really a very small percentage of the activity that happens on the blockchain. The real challenge in in making sense of the blockchain is identifying the who's who. And by that, I don't mean individuals. So we're not um, identifying mom and pop or your wallet, David, but referring to things like, well, some of the bad actors, ransomware, darknet markets, various other kinds of terrorism fundraising. So you have that kind of dark ecosystem. And then you have kind of the normal set of players that most folks are aware of, the exchanges, the lending platforms, the payment gateways, and then a very long tail of all sorts of different um, off-the-run ecosystems that are using the blockchain for one thing or another. So our core expertise is really in understanding the identity piece as a way of being able to wrap uh, or make sense of the blockchain. The product that we launched, Sonar, is intended predominantly for financial institutions, So all the big um, traditional finance companies that are looking into the blockchain, really eager to get in, and and all these companies, and we've been speaking to them, I've been speaking to them since 2018, most of the big financial institutions, and they all have a lot of activity happening behind the scenes. The challenges they're facing are around getting comfortable enough with the risks to be able to feel comfortable moving forward. 
So that's what Sonar helps them with is to understand the risks, identify the opportunities, to feel comfortable ent- entering uh, crypto with confidence. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So tell us more to the listeners, right? If you're, you're a data scientist or you're, you're running a platform and you'd like to you know, integrate or collaborate with Sonar, what are a couple of those uh, use cases or customer user journeys that I would explore? Sure. Well, a number of the folks that we're working with, and I, I should mention also that Sonar is currently in, uh, in private beta. So we are um, onboarding new users, but doing it deliberately and, and, uh, and carefully to make sure that we're giving the proper value to everyone that's currently using it. But the use cases we're focused on is, um, well, we have several hedge funds that are using the software and they're using it to identify trade opportunities and to see what other kinds of actors are out there buying and selling the tokens that they're trading to make sure that the, the market doesn't get move against them and they don't get dumped on. So that's a big cohort. We're also speaking with some of the financial service companies. And so the things that they're looking at is mainly around market research. So understanding the dynamics of the different markets, I'd say the biggest uh, topic that the financial service firms are focused on these days is tokenization of real assets, which I think uh, everyone is out there looking for this uh, killer use case for blockchain. And I think that's uh, one of many, but a very obvious one. So some of the things we're doing is looking at some of the tokenized securities and other assets that are existing on the blockchain and helping these companies to understand how they're being used, who's using them, what kind of volumes are are they trading in. So yeah, helping to uh, inform their decisions about um, the different product lines that they're looking into. Right. And I think we've seen a lot of movement from the, the financial sector towards the latter half of 2023 about moving into new financial products, which perhaps has created a resurgence of interest, as you mentioned, in market research. One, for example, is the discussion about having Bitcoin ETFs on the market, and that's created a lot of interest. Um, would you have any color on how you've seen that evolve and why that's creating a lot of resurgence in demand around these tokenization of assets? Well, uh, an ETF unlocks the ability to trade Bitcoin for a very large number of um well, a lot of financial institutions, but predominantly big funds, like, for example, the big pension funds. And just from a purely financial math perspective, it's really a no-brainer to add Bitcoin to your portfolio. It, um, the Sharpe ratio is a kind of a rough estimate of your upside over your risk. Putting in a little Bitcoin into your portfolio, even if it's a small percentage, puts that number up way, way, way higher. So I think the thought around the ETFs and why that has gotten so much attention is because the moment a Bitcoin ETF gets approved, what that means is that Bitcoin becomes a viable asset for a very large number of big funds out there who I think the at least the market believes are, are ready to buy it once it is approved. So I think what that represents is really just a first entry point into, into the blockchain for a number of large companies that just really haven't found that, that first entry point. So I think it's quite significant in that way. I think it's also significant for what it represents in terms of the buying of Bitcoin. This is some of where our technology, for example, can be helpful is looking at, at the, the velocity of Bitcoin and how much of it is 
in places that are easy, where it's easy for it to come out versus places where it looks to be tucked away for the long term. And there's about close to 20 million Bitcoin in circulation in total. But the actual amount that is really that moves around is, is quite small. So I think once these ETFs get approved and these ETF sponsors go out and start buying the Bitcoin, I think we're going to see a, uh, a very fast uh, price appreciation, assuming they get approved. So I, I'd say that's why the ETF news is, uh, is so significant. Yeah, and I, there's been discussions, of course, about BlackRock and other large institutions exploring this movement into ETFs for Bitcoin. What I'm curious about for our audience, mix of executives and technologists is when you hear ETF, maybe not everyone is a finance expert here listening in. Like, Where does this sit in the space of different types of vehicles like 401ks, mutual funds? Is this something that consumers like you and I would uh, participate in? Or is this more institutions like the, the Two Sigmas, the DE Shahs, and the HRTs of the world? Well, I, I mentioned the institutions only because those are the big whales that are likely to really move the markets, but it would include individuals as well. In ETF, essentially what it is, is it usually it's used for packaging a basket of different securities. So for example, the S&P 500, you can create an ETF of that and stuff it with all of the 500 companies that are in the S&P 500. And the ETF essentially turns that package into itself a stock that can be traded just like any other equity. So the same is true for the Bitcoin ETF. If you're buying the Bitcoin ETF, what you're buying is the Bitcoin and the stock that you have is even redeemable for the Bitcoin. So you can go claim your Bitcoin if you want, but in the form of the ETF, it's essentially just like trading um, any other stock on the stock market. So what that means is that for say uh, Texas Teachers, which is uh, a large pension fund, they don't have the technology or the resources to actually go out and buy physical Bitcoin and hold it. But they can go out, of course, and buy a Bitcoin ETF, just like uh, any other stock that they could buy. So it's really the packaging of the Bitcoin into something that looks and feels like uh, and plays nice with the rails that traditional finance is used to working with. And I think what's so interesting is not only this concept of ETFs going to the market, when you think of market research, it's further coupled by your comments earlier, Max, about the movement of assets going from real assets into the tokenization of real assets. And there's been a lot of discussion the last few years about the European Union, specifically the European Central Bank or ECB, talking about a digital euro. And I'm curious your yeah. insights on you know, seeing these assets like the dollar, ren, the euro, go digital. How does that fit into this whole market dynamic? Well, these central bank digital currencies, that's a deep topic in and of itself. I think speaking in general, when it comes to digitizing assets, I think it's a total no-brainer. You know, having worked on derivatives contracts with several hundred page agreements, I know just how complex those can be and what it takes to enforce those and the amount of time and energy and resources that goes into drafting them and keeping track of what the terms are. The prospect of putting that onto a blockchain and having all of that digitized and having it self-enforcing is, um, man, it's just incredible. I think another aspect of it also that I love is like the idea of um, tokenized treasuries, tokenized yield-bearing instruments, where conceivably the currency that you're holding itself could be interest-bearing, right? So no longer any need to have your money sitting in a checking account. Your funds themselves can be uh, earning interest as you're holding them. 
So these are some of uh, what I think are some of the really exciting opportunities. And, and also just the, uh, the settlement too. Settlement is typically T plus two, T plus three in, in traditional finance. That's, um, I think, in this day and age, crazy. Right? Once uh, assets move on to a blockchain, become digitized, near instantaneous. And it's interesting, like everything being discussed today is about insights that are possible through looking at both traditional data off-chain and data on-chain, quickly moving into a world where analytics and insights as a service are being powered by different algorithms and different pipelines, such as AI. So if you would share more, Max, you know, how are you seeing AI making blockchain data more accessible? Well, what I find really interesting about the uh, AI blockchain combination is, um, well, blockchain is inherently a, a transparent network, right? So compared to traditional finance, where like your starting point in terms of data is rather limited, the blockchain, you have everything sitting there right in front of you at your disposal. So just the raw potential for the information that you can draw and the insights that you can pull from that is enormous. What's also interesting is you have the information that's sitting on the blockchain itself, but then you have kind of the whole universe of unstructured information around it. So you may be able to see what, say, Coinbase is doing on the blockchain in its wallets. But you know, to really be able to contextualize what that means, it would be helpful to see, for example, news stories from the day to see if, uh, if you're seeing a large outflow from a given exchange, what the reason for it may be. So yeah, large universe of structured data large universe of unstructured data and just kind of information. I, I would include just the noise on social media in there as well. The promise that, that AI offers is being able to tie those different silos of data together seamlessly. So being able to ask a question, say you see um, in the news that uh, some, some of the recent news with Binance, and you want to know what that actually means for, if you're a fund manager, say your portfolio, that's a question that you could ask to Sonar. And Sonar can answer that question drawing on both the information from the blockchain, but not just giving it back to you in the form of data, in the form of numbers or a chart, actually being able to contextualize it for you and give you a straight answer. So you know, hard to generalize, but, uh, but that's what I see as the big promise of AI is the ability to pull together the unstructured and the structured data and to fully contextualize any kind of re- insight that comes out of the data. And I'm sure there's a variety of ways that customers can use Sonar by Elementus. Some of this would be your universal blockchain query language, which is much similar to the SQL that will run for off-chain, right? But you have your on-chain formulas and queries here. But even beyond that, it's, as you mentioned, these automations. So how are you seeing some of the, the early wins of now this new wave of AI that we've seen in the last couple of years? How is that further enabling your platform to create faster insights and more relevant analytics? Well, it's, uh, I, I would say really there are two ways that it fits into our platform. So one is, is what I just described a moment ago about the contextualization of information that what we're giving back when the, to the user is not just a, a chart and leaving it to the user to make sense of it, but actually providing context for understanding what you're seeing. The other aspect is the, uh, the accessibility piece that uh, any kind of uh, query language that you use is going to necessarily be technical, right? You know, there are varying degrees of technicality, but when you're working with databases and tables, you can only sort of make it so 
the technical bar to entry so low. What I think is awesome about AI is that you can completely remove the technical barrier to entry, where no longer does someone have to describe the different fields that they want to grab from the given table of data. They can just go right to the platform and ask the question they want to know. What does the volume look like out of um, Binance over the last seven days? The software is smart enough to understand what it is they're looking for, go into the database, fetch the results, and present it back to the user. So I've spoken here today enough uh, about uh, you know how excited I am about blockchain as a technology. I think AI is uh, also just uh, in- incredible in, in what it's going to enable. And you know even us as a company, I would say beyond just the product, it's something that we have fully adopted as a team. And the productivity gains have been uh, enormous. Yeah, I think that's some of the early benefits we're seeing is that, you know, developers and business stakeholders can all bring AI into the enterprise workflow. So what used to take uh, maybe a developer to build queries from scratch over a certain period of time, you could reduce that by half or more by having an AI-assisted support, and that's really exciting to see in development. And it's great to see that your platform is marrying the two together, bringing the best of both the AI and blockchain worlds as one with your Sonar platform. Now, Max, thinking out ahead over the next year, there's so much opportunity as you know the markets are continuing to, we could say, awaken uh, and, and grow. And so what are you seeing as some of like the trends and some of the exciting things in the next year for you and the company? Well, I don't want to jinx anything, but I would say that right now, all signs are pointing towards a a resurgence for blockchain tech next year. I mean, just simply looking back historically, you see these four-year cycles have been remarkably consistent where there's a big run-up and uh, everyone's very excited about uh, Bitcoin blockchain, and then the excitement dies down. We end up back in crypto winter. The time periods between peak to peak have been um, remarkably consistent, and we're just coming up on when you would expect the next resurgence, just looking at that measure. You have uh, the halving coming up, which is also going to um, further restrict Bitcoin supply, which I, I think you pair that with these ETFs and the buying that's going to need to happen there. And I think you have um, a real supply-demand imbalance that's going to uh, push Bitcoin higher. And uh, traditional finance. We've been keeping close tabs on kind of where TradFi is when it comes to uh, to blockchain tech over the last five years, and they've kind of always been kind of lurking just behind the uh, the starting line. And we're starting to see a number of um, these companies that are really starting to push forward initiatives. So I think next year we'll see the next cycle of Bitcoin. Hopefully the price is going to go up, and hopefully we're going to see a um, good amount of activity from traditional finance as they start to adopt the technology. I'm very excited to see uh, the markets and you know what 2024 and beyond will be bringing to financial instruments. I think it's always exciting to see new things out there, right? We've seen a lot of AI startups. We've seen a lot of blockchain startups. We see all these new vehicles coming out. So really excited to see what's coming out there. And of course, how Sonar by Elementus is going to power a lot of the analytics, the insights to better understand these new vehicles, because it's going to be a lot of market research that we're going to need to understand whether you're a consumer or you're an institution on the buy or sell side, looking at and seeing these macro and microeconomic trends. So Max, Max Galka from Elementus, thanks for joining us today on the Humane Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. 
Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane.